listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and Will the Thrill. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I'm your host, LD. Along with me for the ride this week is Will the Thrill. Hola. Well, this week is sucked a sandwich. Uh, no, a sandwich would be a good thing. <sighs> okay, so like a, a peanut butter and toenail sandwich. That's pretty awful. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, we lost <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. We had an earthquake. The fires are still destroying the fires. West Coast. Yeah, still have fires. And um, our neighbors are the worst people on the planet. I think they're in strong contention. I don't know if they are the worst, but definitely in the conversation. Yeah. Well, they're the worst in my life. Makes sense. How do you smoke so much weed that you can smell it in someone else's bathroom? That is <laughs> that my takes, question. That takes a remarkable amount of effort. They are smoking so much weed that... If you're sitting in our bathroom, <laughs> you can smell it. And then there were the countless technical issues we had with our Wi-Fi and everything else. And just, yeah. Yeah, everything kind of falling apart at the seams. <laughs> this week has sucked. <laughs> yeah, this, I would rather not repeat it. But it's Sunday. It's a new week. Yay. Time to, time to get back to it. Yep. So we are picking up our second part of our series on Sammy Davis Jr., part two of four of our series on the Rat Pack. So next week we're going to be talking about the awesome Dean Martin and then after that, I believe we have Mr. Frank Sinatra. That's where we're going to cap it off, yeah. Yep. Then we begin our series on the 27 Club, since it's going to be ooky spooky October. I just realized, is, is Joey Bishop kind of like the Staten Island of the Rat Pack? <laughs> I mean, well, no, the thing is, Joey Bishop didn't really sing. He was a comedian. True. And so when you're putting him in the pantheon of like the Rat Pack that we are specifically talking about, he doesn't really fit. The analogy still stands. <laughs> He's more like the Ringo. He okay, has he has talent, but it is overshadowed by uh, Manhattan and the Bronx and Brooklyn. If his focus wasn't singing, he wouldn't find a, a home here on our our broadcast, correct? Yeah, I mean he he we would talk about if we were covering the rap pack. Then yeah. Oh, and as a uh, point, um, I listened <laughs> to. My own advice and went back and listened to a series on the blacklist from Karina Longworth's series on the blacklist on the podcast. You must remember this. And I did discover that, yes, it is Cone. His name is Harry Cone. So I am, before anybody writes me any angry letters, yes, I apologize. It was Cone. And we know we can trust Karina Longworth because her enunciation is taken to the nth degree <laughs> with written. Written. I love she takes her pronunciation very seriously. The secret and or forgotten history of Hollywood's first century. Yeah, every single syllable. Is just, <laughs> so we know we know it's correct. Thank you. Thank you, Karina Longworth. <laughs> thank you, Karina Longworth. That's the thing. Like, it's her information is so incredibly good that occasionally I can get over her over enunciations. It's kind of like when you're so bored that you just watch a video with a computer voice mm -hmm. giving facts. And you're like... I can live with this. <laughs> this. This is fine. This suits the my needs. The information is interesting, therefore I will listen to it. Okay, so we are going to jump back in. And if you guys will recall, Sammy had just put out his album, which we ended with last week with Two Separate Worlds. 
and I'm going to butcher the name again. It was Sammy Davis and Lorindo Alameda. So he had just recorded that. So we're actually going to rock back a little bit for what I assume all of our listeners are waiting for. In 1960, he joined the Rat Pack. Yay. Now, you guys have to understand that the Rat Pack was kind of an informal group of entertainers. And this was actually the second iteration of the Rat Pack. Because there was the 60s Rat Pack and then there was the 50s Rat Pack. Remind me who the 50s were? I will get there. Oh, we're getting there. Okay. Yeah. So they made movies, appeared together in Las Vegas casinos and venues. And they originated as a group of A-list show business friends who met casually at the Los Angeles home of Humphrey Bogart. And Lauren Bacall. Like it too. I mean, obviously. In the 60s, the group featured Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, and others. They appeared together on stage in films in the early 60s, including, of course, Ocean's Eleven, which was remade with George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Casey Affleck, Matt Damon. Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle. Oh, my gosh. Carl Reiner. Mack. Oh, yeah, and then two of those guys are dead. Elliot Gould. Yeah. It's so much better than the first one. Well, the first one didn't really even have a script. I think it was just them shooting stuff. They went to Vegas <laughs> and brought cameras. That was the extent of it. Whereas the Steven Soderbergh one is quite enjoyable. Yes. I, I do love a good heist movie. Uh, they made Sergeants 3 and Robin and the Seven Hoods, being Crosby replaced Glawford in that last movie. Sinatra, Martin... Davis were regarded as the group's lead members after Bogart's death. So the 1950s, the original Rat Pack were Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and of course, he's from, you know, it's it's Bogey. It's Bogey and Bacall. And that's 1954. The man who did not get sick on the set of African Queen because he drank whiskey when everyone else drank water. You know, and, and not to keep harping back to Karina Longworth... But she did a great episode on Bogey and Bacall, and they specifically talk about that film because that was written, I believe, by Dalton Trumbo. Was he part of the whole communist? Uh, oh, he was the yeah, biggest he one. Was a, he was the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, they actually made a film about it. I think it was called oh, Trumbo. With Brian Cranston, right? I think so. We should watch that movie as soon as we're done with Supernatural, which... <laughs> Only never seven more happen. seasons to go. <laughs> If we get done really quick today, we can we can get burned through season eight. Jeez. I, I have, we only need 22 hours. But yeah, Bogey actually started out as a Broadway person. So I mean, he's got a really interesting story. Too bad he wasn't a singer. We totally cover him. Now, the name The Rat Pack was used to refer to a group of friends in New York, and several explanations have been offered for the name. According to one version, Bacall saw her husband, Bogart, and his friends returning for a night in Las Vegas and said, you look like a goddamn Rat Pack. <laughs> it also may be a shortened version of the Humbly Hills Rat Pack, a reference to the home of Bogey and Bacall, which served as a regular hangout for the group. Hmm. Now, that iteration had Errol Flynn, Ava Gardner, a future episode, Nat King Cole, Robert Mitchum, Elizabeth Taylor, Janet Lee, Tony Curtis, Mickey Rooney, Lena Horne, Jerry Lewis, and Cesar Romero. That had to be bonkers, I mean. Oh my God, that's so much. I mean, Errol Flynn, uh, everything I hear about him, he was a oh, he he was was, crazy. He was a, a naughty boy. Yeah, he was like the Charlie Sheen of the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were doing an episode on uh, 
you know, my short-lived paranormal idea that I had, we actually talked about Errol Flynn's home because he would, like, drill holes to watch, you know, ladies do stuff. That was at his, uh, the one on Sunset Boulevard, right? That famous house? I think house? so. Yeah. It's been so, gosh, that was so long ago. Which was basically just a den of iniquity from what yeah. I understand. Yeah. Don't don't actually step anywhere and make sure to wash your hands. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, according to Stephen Bogart, the original members of the Homley Hills Rat Pack were Frank Sinatra, the pack master... Judy Garland, the first vice president, Sid Luff, the cage master, Bogart, rat in charge of public relations, and Swifty Lazar, recording secretary and treasurer, and Nathan Benchley, historian, David Nevin, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, George Krukor, uh, Krukor, it's all about the emphasis, uh, Cary Grant, and Rex Harrison, and then the 60s version had Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter, Law- Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, Marilyn Monroe, Angie Dickinson, Buddy Greco, and Shirley MacLaine. And they were often referred to as Rat Pack mascots. Comedian Don Rickles wrote that I never received an official membership card, but Frank made me feel like a part of the fun. And if you recognize the name Nathan Benchley, it is because he is the father of author Peter Benchley. Oh, nice. Who wrote, as we all know, Jaws. Mm. The book is good. The book is good. The movie Are you is sure? Little... Oh, I've read the book. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Ugh. No offense to Steve-O, because <laughs> he, he did the best he could. So Sammy Davis Jr. was the type of entertainer who would start a solo performance at 8 p.m. and not leave until 11.30. And he could take the stage and go from tap dancing to singing to playing the trumpet to impressions. A specialist was often needed in his spotlight tower because someone who had never done lights before for Sammy could not keep up. How? So, sounds like Robin Williams, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I don't know if I have this in my notes or not, but what kind of started the whole... Now, the whole kind of Rat Pat performance in Vegas thing actually kind of started from what I understand when they were shooting Ocean's Eleven. Because hmm. they would shoot Ocean's Eleven, and then when they were wrapped for the day, they'd actually go to the sands and perform. And so... One night, Sammy Davis Jr. was performing, and he was going over the allotted time for the performer. But, I mean, it's Sammy Davis Jr. So Frank Sinatra, in the middle of Sammy Davis Jr.'s performance, walked out on stage and started harassing him (laughs) and, like, talking to the audience. And then, finally, he said something, and he was like, okay, Sammy, you are really tired. We got to get you to bed. And he pulled him off stage. Wow. So the next night... Frank Sinatra was on stage <laughs> and Dean Martin came out and did the same thing to him. And he started like heckling him while on stage. Like, Oh God, Frank, that song is so long. Sing something shorter. I'm ready to go to bed. Like, and so it just became a thing where people felt like they were seeing some sort of like inside joke <laughs> that they weren't sure that they should be seeing. And it really made them feel awesome because they were part of something new and cool and interesting that that they felt a party to. That's pretty awesome. And that's kind of how the whole, you know, (laughs) grab-assing on (laughs) stage started. And I just thought that was a really cool story. Yeah, and I love how they had a very strong sense of sort of camaraderie as in they could do it to each other. But if someone did it to them, oh, Oh, God, help them. Yep. Yep. So I'm only going to call him this because literally this is what Sammy Davis Jr. would refer to himself as. 
but he called himself the short black one-eyed Jew, and he did shows all over the world. But one of his favorite stops was at the Chi-Chi Nightclub and restaurant in Palm Springs. We love Palm Springs. Yes, we do. Opened in 1938, this was the largest club west of the Mississippi for a short period of time in the 1950s. In the on the one night, one night in the mid 1960s, with Sammy nearing the end of another sold out show at the Chi-Chi, he finished a song and started a Jerry Lewis impression while dancing off the stage. In a holster on his right thigh was a 45 caliber pistol, a 45 caliber pistol loaded with blanks. Oh, An actual 45 bullet is big enough that if it was shot into someone's shoulder, it wouldn't just go through; it would take the whole shoulder with it. And again, I don't know anything about guns, but I'm assuming no matter what size the bullet is, it probably hurts. A 45 packs a punch, that's for sure. Does it? How big is it? A 45? Um, It's probably about that big. Okay. It's bigger than obviously the 38 or the Yeah, I don't know guns. Uh, Sammy was one of the fastest draws in Hollywood. The quick pull was a big part of his act. That's how he liked to end his shows. So Sammy planned on that as the ending of his Chi-Chi set with a quick draw and a firing of the gun. But by accident... The pistol was already cocked, and so when he went oh, to geez. pull it, the powder from the blank shot out of the holster onto his mohair <laughs> tuxedo pants, and a five-inch circle of skin on his back calf began to burn. Ouch. How? <laughs> like, you think about how bad a paper cut hurts. It's like a less harmful version of the Plaxico Burris incident in the nightclub. <laughs> Well, don't put a gun in your sweatpants. If you take away nothing from this episode. Just don't put guns in your pants. Okay, kids. Some of the members of the audience screamed and Sammy continued to dance. Discreetly, he whispered to a nearby friend, go get a doctor. Go get a doctor. (laughs) But he didn't stop the routine. It's freaking Iron Man. He kept the dance and impersonation going all the way off the stage. How crazy is that? Well, the guy's lost his eye. He's been through a lot of stuff. I feel like getting shot with a blank in the leg is just like another Tuesday for Sammy. I, well, when we were cleaning up the house yesterday, I turned to Will and I just said, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. is a pretty sexy guy for having been hit in the face with a Cadillac. Oh, he's he's a badass. <laughs> I I love I love Sammy Davis. Like, like I said in the last episode, like I feel like Sammy is probably the best vocalist, followed by Dean. And, and we'll talk about Frank at the end of this month. <laughs> Look, we're not taking anything away from Frank. He is the chairman of the board. He's yeah, he all Frank's blue eyes. He's he's the man. It's just, I'm, I'm going to save my comments for rebuttal when I do the episode. He's got he's got more in common with Johnny Cash than he does with Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, completely. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Thank God that there were plenty of doctors in the audience because his audience was almost completely white. That was not atypical. After all, the Chichi Club was, they wouldn't serve Native American drinks in glasses. What the heck? Yeah. They would serve them in, like, coffee mugs and... Why? Because they were racist, honey. Okay. I did, wow. <sighs> it also wasn't atypical when Sammy performed the Chichi that uh, his uncle and his father, as a teenager in the early 40s, was one of the members of the first Rat Pack to perform in Palm Springs. He had to stay in a little room above the stage constructed specifically for black Americans. And their money was no good in hotels. Like, we really haven't... We we touched on it when he was a soldier. And we'll get into it a little bit more. But the fact is that racism up until, I think, 
maybe the 70s, maybe even early 80s, you, you couldn't get performers, like African-American performers would not stay in hotels that they were performing at. It just didn't happen. They had this thing called the Green Book, mm. which was a, a book that told you where it was safe for African-Americans to eat, where they could sleep, places that were friendly to them, and that was to keep them safe. And next year, we're doing a little bit of retooling on the actual format of Rock and Roll Heaven. You'll see that when we when we talk about it. We're going to be releasing a very special episode. But we're going to be bringing back the opening acts, and we will be talking about the Green Book. So We also touched upon this in our Jim Crow episode as well. And as we, as we go on, you'll, I think you'll see Sammy taking a very, you know, very active stance in the civil rights movement. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna actually get it to that in just a bit. This was Sammy's reality. He was a black entertainer in a whitewashed world, a man who owed most of his career to Frank Sinatra. And I hate that idea of the white savior, which is how it's portrayed in films. Basically, you know, the Blind Side is mm-hmm. one of the big ones, but he was a more versatile performer and someone who came to be one of the most popular mainstream entertainers in the world after starting his career performing in blackface. Wow. And there are two sides to every coin, and Sammy actually lived somewhere on the edges. I think Sammy had seen, through Frank Sinatra's eyes, white nightclub living and how exuberant and how stylish and how sophisticated it was, said Will Haygood, an author who penned what is considered to be the the preeminent biography on Sammy called In Black and White. He had seen that he was 18 or 19 years old, and he would go into the, the Chitlin circuit, and I think we covered that with Nina Simone. Okay. A little bit. The mostly black clubs in rundown parts of town that really didn't drive him. It was almost like if you showed them Paris, how do you get them to go back to the farm? From the beginning, Sinatra stood up for Sammy. And sometime in the late 40s, Frank appeared in a theater in New York during the lull of his career. And he goes to Harlem to see the Will Maston Trio and was blown away by Sammy's talent. And after the show, he heads backstage to pay his respects and asks Sammy to come see him perform. About a week passes, no Sammy. So Sinatra goes back to Harlem to see the, the show again and says something to the effect of, I'm angry with you. I came to see you twice and you never came to see me. Sammy, speaking to the man that he adored more than anything else in the world, said, Frank, I did. They wouldn't let me in. Yeah, they wouldn't let him in the theater. So they wouldn't even allow him to come see Frank. Like That to me is baloney. Frank then storms back to the theater, tears up his contract, and left. Yeah. Like that is awesome. This was not Sinatra at his peak fame. He actually needed that gig. So oh, yeah. so tearing that contract up was a huge step to really endearing himself to Sammy. Oh, yeah. Well, Sammy meant a lot to him. I mean, they were like brothers. Yeah. Sammy, uh, the boy with the scrapbook, talked about that a lot over the years. As Sammy and Sinatra's relationship grew, so did Sammy's career. Sinatra selected the Will Maston Trio to open for him at the prestigious Capitol Theater, in 1947, to which Sammy incredulously responded, Why me? <laughs> when Sammy was denied entry into the Copacabana, Sinatra made sure he got in the next time. When he was not allowed to stay in the Las Vegas hotel where they were performing, Sinatra used his clout to enable Sammy to break the color line in Las Vegas. And remember from our last episode, the, the real owners of the Copacabana and the casinos. Yeah. 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 Their word is their bond. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. For Sammy, being friends with Sinatra and the Rat Pack 
wasn't just a social benefit. It was an entry point into Hollywood, the whitewashed world of stardom that eluded so many talented African-American entertainers. To enter that world, though, meant leaving part of his past behind. He did find much to admire in the white world because that's where he wanted to go. Uh, He wanted to be at the very top. I think Sammy was very smart, smarter than a lot of people gave him credit for, Haygood said. He knew who the top agents were, he knew who the top stars were, and there wasn't a black equivalent to some of the white movers and shakers that Sammy leaned into, and he realized that. Mm. With the Rat Pack, Sammy's roles continued to grow, and he appeared in more movies, more television shows, recording his own album, and with Mastin and his father aging, the bill on the marquee turned from the Will Mastin trio to simply Sammy. Nice. Uh, He was a bona fide black star in a country who had little room for tolerance at the time. If he had been in this era, he probably would have received, I don't know how many Academy Awards, Emmys, and Tonys, said Beverly Johnson, a Palm Spring resident, and the first African-American model on the cover of Vogue. He would have done it all if he was a talent of today. He was an unbelievable talent. And you think about somebody like on par with him would be like uh, Chance the Rapper. Isn't he almost an EGOT? Yeah. Or like Common. Common is also one. Um, You have something like Lin-Manuel Miranda. But you think about somebody that would be like Sammy Davis. Because you have Childish Gambino, who's Donald Glover. He's pretty close, actually. Yeah, he's really close. You have Common, who is a musician. You had you've got these these talents like that. That's that would be, I guess, something along the line of Sammy Davis Jr.'s contemporaries. They are equivalent, but they still lack the the one two three punch that Sammy had. I mean, I, I, Glover, as talented as he is, you know, and and all these guys we're talking about, I just feel like Sammy, like you said, could have owned Broadway. He could have, you know, oh yeah, he could have done it all. Yeah. He was, uh, you know what, though? He was born in the perfect time. I was just born in the wrong decade. Mm -hmm. I should have been born in, like, 1944. Like, it's about the same year your dad was born. Yeah. That way I could have gone to Woodstock and the Monterey Pop Fest and but been around for the Rat Pack, but, like, still been, like, cute (laughs) (laughs) by the time they rolled around. Because I only would have been, like, 28, so I would have still been adorable. (laughs) Not like I am now. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) On stage, the Rat Pack was notorious for ribbing each other. We talked about that a few minutes ago. That extended into their social time, too, as they were merciless with their pranks and their jokes. And the brunt of those were directed at Sammy Davis or based on his skin color. Yeah. But again, like, it was that boys club where they could rib him about stuff. But if you didn't, there'd be hell to pay. Mm Mm-hmm. Sinatra's nickname for Sammy was Smokey, and he would do things like jokingly ask Sammy to get a pan and clean up the cigarette ashes since they wouldn't show up on his skin. Wow. (sighs) Frank, 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 Frank. The jokes appeared in films, too, and the well-known one is Ocean's Eleven. It's about a group of crooks trying to steal from three big Vegas casinos. Sammy plays a garbage man, and he has arguably the biggest role in the heist, but also deals with jokes like the one near the end of the movie where the group is putting shoe shine on their faces as disguise while Sammy giggles and says, I knew this color would come in handy one day. The response is, how do you get this stuff off? Wow. <sighs> Sammy Davis Jr. was notorious for his dalliance in drug and alcohol abuse back in the day. When he was working on Ocean's Eleven with his fellow Rat Pack cohorts, Sam recalled to the New York Times that they would 
drink salty dogs. Do you know what salty dogs are? Oh yeah, that's a that's a breakfast treat right there. Ugh, it's gin and grapefruit juice. Like I said breakfast of champions. Ugh, at eight in the morning just to get, get the your blood. vitamin C. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but you don't do that just to get your blood flowing. <laughs> Some might disagree. I drank so much that my left eye would start to close, and they'd have to stop filming. And we're talking about the 60s. At eight in the morning. Oh, my God. Salty dogs. <laughs> TJ will have to drink one of those when oh, he does his. the signature drink. Oh, uh, man. Well, thankfully, I think Frank's is whiskey, so I'll be good with that one when we get there. Yeah, he was drinking up to two bottles of bourbon a day until nervous exhaustion and a misaligned liver <laughs> caused him to collapse. Good that's, Lord. That's, or is that maligned? misaligned it is, so i got it right yeah, i had the word <laughs> misaligned does that mean the drinking knocked his liver out of position i mean that's <laughs> I i'm not so. i'm not angry i'm impressed yeah he told the new york times i looked at my liver on the electric scanner in the hospital it was in the shape of texas <laughs> <laughs> oh my god the fact was he was black just played into a lot of the stuff that went on and the jokes were being tossed and the gags were being played on each other and the silliness would happen, said Rutta Lee, an actress who spent time with the group on the set of the 1962 film Sergeant 3. It was kind of an openness that was so funny and so wonderful, not because it was understated or hidden. It was just thrown out and it was fabulous. Everybody adored Sammy and for good reason. Hmm. The jokes in comparison to the racial climate at the time were fairly innocuous. They didn't affect the roles that Davis landed with the Rat Pack Cannon, and it didn't seem to deeply affect their friendship. Though Sammy and Sinatra did have fights and went long periods without talking, many who knew Sinatra would trace those rifts more to his notorious hot and cold temperament. You're talking about Frank, right? Yeah, a common thread in most of his close relationships. So, yes, we're talking about Frank's outbursts. Got it, okay. Because I'm guessing in your... Oh, oh they're well documented, yes. Yeah, there are some, uh, yeah, there's some great stories about Frank. Oh, I cannot wait until that episode. <laughs> but Sammy rolled with it. It wasn't that he really had a choice, but it was better to be joking with Sinatra than scraping along on the vaudeville circuit, which is what he would have been kind of relegated to if he bit the hand that fed him. And I think Sammy was smart enough to know that. It was like, you know, make your jokes. It's totally fine. But keep your chin down. Know your place. But he had that ally in Frank that would go to the bat for him. And so I think he just kind of would roll with the punches. If you want to provide for your family, you had to do what was asked of you, said Jarvis Crawford, the president of the Palm Springs Black History Committee. So if I'm going to call you Smokey as a nickname, I'm going to laugh it off and be called Smokey. I know for a fact that at the end of the day, someone who is African-American wouldn't want to be called that. It's like if you're a white person, you don't want to be called Casper. Sammy was also indebted to Sinatra in a lot of ways. It's likely without the support of the most famous white singer in the country, Sammy's career would have looked a lot different. Sinatra introduced him to all the movers and the shakers, the people who produced records and movies and basically were the ones that could change your life, that would put you in these pa these positions where mm. you could do stage, you could do screen, you could do your recordings. And Frank was a big proponent of Sammy's, so he put him in front of these guys. Sure. He took Sammy's to parties with Marilyn Monroe and fundraisers for John F. Kennedy and help Sammy turn his talent into superstardom. So Sammy could make all the jokes he wanted. Sammy was the top. He was where he always dreamed of being. You're my boss, Crawford said. You're making sure I get paid. You're making sure I have a livelihood. And I'm not going to mess up a good thing. Sammy had to do it. Harry Belafonte had to do it. Sidney Poitier had to do it. 
Sammy wouldn't have been able to call up Frank and call him a wop. He couldn't have said to Dean, hey, you Dago, you'd never hear that side of the story. Sounds like it wasn't exactly a fair game. Yeah, no, people could rib Sammy about his race, but you couldn't make fun of, like Sammy wouldn't be able to make fun of Dino being Italian. Or Frank for that matter. Frank, or like you, you could, there was no turnabout being fair play. In this sense, like you were, he was the one that would get poked for that specifically. And that sucks. As soon as he entered mainstream culture, the black community began to distance himself from Sammy. They actually couldn't see his live shows. And on TV and the movies, they saw him just palling it up with white actors and poking fun of his race. And he was actually called Uncle Tom. Oh, jeez. And, and much worse, which I will not say on this I'm podcast. Sure, yeah. It didn't help that he, he did his little kissing thing. <laughs> With Archie Bunker, one of the most racist characters in modern television history, or hugged Richard Nixon on stage at a rally. And I think I delve a little bit more into him kissing Archie Bunker. Okay. But it's, it's, it was a great moment. But African Americans would see him, black, the black community would see him basically palling around with the, the white people. Right. Basically, they're oppressors. And so, of course, they distanced themselves from him. Even his involvement with the civil rights movement was questioned. He got involved later than other black entertainers like Poitier and Belafonte. And even though he donated a lot of money to Martin Luther King and the movement, and he marched on Selma, he was actually never considered one of the frontrunners. Oh, wow. So think about it. He was there at Selma. He donated a ton of money to Martin Luther King. He was marching. He was donating. He was putting his money where his mouth is. And still people didn't respect him as because of what he was doing on stage and screen. <sighs> so in the early 60s, he joined Sinatra, uh, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop at the famed Summit at the Sands show, where the group collectively known as the Rat Pack set a new standard for hip, freeform performances. Davis was initially denied residence at the Sands Hotel until Sinatra threatened to pull the plug on the Rat Pack show unless Davis got his own suite. It's a famous story. That yeah. is a very famous story. The Hotel Casino Brass acquiesced to his demands, mm-hmm. and that opened the door up for other black performers who had been forced post-show to find accommodations in boarding houses and motels in West Las Vegas. So eventually, when Davis performed in Northern Nevada, he enjoyed residing at a home that the casino owner, Bill Hera, built for the entertainers to stay during their engagements. Mm-hmm. And Hera, you should know, because it's... Casinos of the same name. Yeah. Yes, the Harris Casino, and I wonder if they're the same family that owned the the, the shopping center, like the I the, depart- they are. the department I store. I believe it's the same family. Yeah, same family. So we're talking billions and billions. Yeah, according to Rabbi W. M. Kramer, who officiated at the 1961 wedding of Davis and Swedish actress Mae Britt, although Davis was known publicly and famously as a Jew since the mid 1950s, it was only until 1961 that he underwent a formal conversion, quietly, under the tutelage of Rabbi Harry Sear in Las Vegas. Davis had been referred to Sear by Rabbi Max Nussbaum of the Reformed Temple of Israel in Hollywood, who had been asked to officiate at the couple's wedding and to oversee May Britt's conversion. Oh, wow. So they both converted to Judaism? So they both converted to Judaism, but it's really, <laughs> I know this is like completely off topic, but when you say Nussbaum, that reminds me of... The Fonz's grandmother. Oh, the happy days. Mrs. Newsbaum. Mrs. Yeah. Mrs. Newsbaum. 
they're like loose bomb. She's like, I've been married. <laughs> I have such an old soul. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that time on that show that happened like 40 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I was with you. Okay. I understood. Yeah. So his marriage to May Britt caused so much anger that he carried a gun and an umbrella with a hidden knife in the tip in case of attackers. There are mobs outside of his shows, death, threat, death threats sent to his dressing room, and they eventually got married with Sinatra as his best man, but it wasn't a smooth process to get there. Kramer writes that the news of the couple's plan to marry at the Temple Israel elicited numerous threats against the synagogue. Britt, who was a white woman, whose trustees asked Newsbaum not to allow the ceremony to take place there. They put Newsbaum into an uncomfortable situation, not wanting to offend either his employer or Sammy Davis. Kramer was then Newsbaum's deputy at the temple, and he wrote in a somewhat deadpan style, All I know is that my senior colleague was suddenly called out of town, and I know that I'd be asked to cover for him in the ceremony, which was transferred out of the temple into Sammy Davis's home in the Hollywood Hills. If marrying the two of them was dangerous, Kramer continues... I was evidently regarded as expendable. For my part, I was delighted. He also notes that he did indeed receive hundreds of life-threatening phone calls and letters. Thank God nothing happened. People are idiots, I mean. Yeah. Um, so we are going to take a short break here to pay a couple bills with our sponsors. So check those out. And we will be right back. And welcome back. Davis liked to describe the time that he was playing golf with Jack Benny and was asked what his handicap was. As he described it later in an article in Ebony Magazine, he responded, a handicap? Talk about handicap. I'm a one-eyed Negro Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I would never say that word unless it was a full quote. So, In the terms of career, Sammy Davis Jr. reached about as high as an entertainer could go in the 60s. He had his own variety show. He performed on Broadway and in several films. Some with his best pal, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, Frank Sinatra, among others, who together were the Rat Pack. In the 1960s, he had his own TV variety show, which we touch on a little bit later. He was performing on Broadway and in films. He had a best-selling record and was a headliner in Vegas, and he was participating in the Civil Rights Movement. He was a generous donor to Jewish causes, but all of his biographers have noted that Davis, who published four memoirs when he was alive, was involved in a lifelong battle for acceptance. Of course he was. As the writer Lee Grossman noted in Time in 2003 when reviewing a new biography of the entertainer, Davis was a howling void of insecurity that drowned out all other emotion. He craved affection, especially from white people, for pr preferably famous, preferably Frank. Despite what appeared to be a free-swinging playboy lifestyle, a lifetime enduring racial prejudice led Davis to use his fame for political means. During the 1960s, he became active in the civil rights movement, participating on the March on Washington, and refusing to perform at segregated nightclubs, for which he is credited for help with integrating in Las Vegas and Miami Beach. Oh, wow, Miami too. Yeah, well, I think that's where the Coconut Grove was, right? Uh, the nightclub, yeah, the one that had the fire in it. Yes. In 1960s, there was another radical change when he married May Brett, which we just talked about. While interracial marriage had been legal in California since 1948, 
anti-miscegenation laws in the United States. Sorry if I didn't pronounce that word right. It is very long and has more than like 13 letters. Those laws still stood in 23 states. And a 1958 opinion poll had found only 4% of Americans supported marriage between black and white spouses. Davis received racial hate mail while starring in the Broadway adaptation of Golden Boy during 1964-66, in which his character is in a relationship with a white woman paralleling his own interracial relationships. At the time, Davis was appearing in the musical, although New York had no law against it. Debate about interracial marriage was still ongoing in America as Loving v. Virginia was being fought. And that is a famous court case. Okay. And I believe there was a film made about it called Loving. Oh, interesting. Can you check my work? Uh, look it up, yeah. Uh, I believe it's the film with uh, Ruth Nega and Joel Edgerton. What is the synopsis? The story of Richard and Mildred Loving, a couple who's arrested for interracial marriage in 1960s Virginia. Yep. Hey, I'm smart. Mm-hmm. Yay, I know stuff. <laughs> I should have a podcast. Hey. <laughs> But yes, that, that is the film. It came out in 2016. Okay. It was only in 1967, after the musical had closed, that in the anti-you-can't-love-who-you-want-to-love law, that's what I'm going to call it now, Okay. in all states, ruled were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States. There so, you go. yay! Love is love is love is love. <laughs> Davis's daughter Tracy re- revealed in a 2014 book that this marriage also resulted in President Kennedy al- refusing to allow Davis to perform at his inauguration. Whoa. Yeah. The snub was confirmed by director Sam Pollard, who revealed in a 2017 America's Masters documentary that Davis's invitation to perform at his inauguration was, abrupt- was abruptly canceled on the night of his inaugural party. Which is crazy because if you think about it, who was one of Jack Kennedy's biggest voices? Is is Frank Sinatra? Was well, Frank? Yeah, absolutely. He actually recorded "High Hopes" for the Kennedy campaign. campaign. Yeah, campaign. Yeah, yeah. So he he actually recorded "High Hopes" for the Kennedy campaign. Well, it's so interesting that you talk. I, I mean, you know me the way I see it. This is all roads lead back to the mob. Uh, I think it explains a lot of what's going to happen in the next few years. Yeah, I, it's I mean, just think about it. It just it still sucks. Uh, Davis and Britt had one daughter, Tracy, and they adopted two sons, Mark and Jeff. Davis performed almost continuously and spent little time with his wife, and they actually divorced in 1968. Mm. So after Davis admitted to having an affair with the singer Lola Falana, Lola okay. Falana. After his marriage imploded, Davis turned to alcohol and found solace in drugs, particularly cocaine and amyl nitrate and experimented briefly with satanism and pornography that's a friday night bingo card right there and speaking of (laughs) fun with adults (laughs) good good segue i I am nailing these segues (laughs) if you want to spice up your bedroom free stuff is awesome and adam and eve is here for you Select almost any one item for 50% off, and then Adam and Eve loads on the free stuff. So head on over to adamandeve.com and enter the referral code RRHeaven at checkout and get 10 tantalizing free gifts. And a, that's, a, that's a sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. Ooh. 
Sexy. This is my sexy voice. There it is. <laughs> and you'll also get six free spicy movies and free shipping. So go to adamneve.com, enter the code RRHEAVEN at checkout and get 50% off almost any one item and 10 free gifts. That's RRHEAVEN at adamneve.com. So the Iconic Performer also released a set of streams of albums on Decca and Reprise. And remember, Reprise is Frank's, Frank's label. Yep. Dave is actually the first artist to be signed on that latter label, which was launched by Frank Sinatra. Davis was nominated for Record of the Year for the song What Kind of Fool Am I, which reached the top 20 of the Billboard pop charts. And Davis's live stage work continued to earn him honors as seen with his Tony-nominated performance in 1964's Golden Boy. In 1966, he had his own short-lived variety show, The Sammy Davis Jr. Show, I feel like that was like a rite of passage in the 60s. Like, everybody had to have their own variety show. Like right. Sonny and Cher and the Smothers Brothers and Carol Burnett. Carol and, Burnett show, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Who else? Was it Mary Tyler Moore or was that? Did Mary Tyler Moore have her own? I thought she did. But, yeah, I, I just feel like at some point every performer had their own variety show. And then years later he actually played host again to a syndicated talk show called Sammy and Company from 1975 to 1977. In 1968, Davis started dating Alta Vice Gore, a dancer in Golden Boy, and they were married on May 11th, 1970 by somebody who is a familiar name to you. And that would be? The Reverend Jesse Jackson. Oh, yeah. This would be his final marriage. He had another hit single in 1968 with I Gotta Be Me. Classic. Which peaked at number 11 and became a signature tune. But increasingly, Sammy's reprise recordings followed the downward trajectory of his career and his life at large. Catching up with the social upheaval of the swinging London, Sammy started to abuse booze, drugs, and started wearing outrageous fashions, divorcing his wife, May Britt, and began unintentionally cultivating an image as an aging hipster in the recording studio. He had attempted a more R&B material style with little success and started lifting from the Blood, Sweat, and Tears songbook. So, heading back to 1968, we are going to listen to one of my favorite <laughs> songs by Sammy Davis Jr., which is I Gotta Be Me. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me. I gotta be me. What else can I be but what I am? I want to live, not merely survive. I won't give up this dream of life that keeps me alive I gotta be me I gotta be me The dream that I see makes me what I am That far away prize A world of success is waiting for me if I need 
settle down Won't settle for less As long as there's a chance That I can have it all I'll go it alone That's how it must be I can't be right for somebody else If I'm not right for me I gotta be free I've gotta be free Daring to try to be win or die Somebody else If I'm not right for me I gotta be free I just gotta be free Daring to try to do it or die I gotta be A good song. I can't believe you don't remember that from the money pit. I don't. What I do remember it from was how excited I got when they used it for season two of the Westworld promo. It was a good promo, yeah. I mean, and it fits so perfectly with everything that was going on in the show. I like don't think that you <laughs> could have, if you had told someone to sit down, watch the entire season of Westworld prior to everyone else doing it and then write a song based on it, it could not have been more perfect than what Sammy did. It was amazing. So we're going to flash forward to the 1970s, and he was actually bitterly criticized in 72 during the Republican National Convention in Miami because he hugged Richard Nixon. To many black Americans, the photo of the incident was equivalent testimony to what they saw as Davis's misplaced values. On his blatant drug abuse, Sammy told the New York Times in 1972, Today... When I meet guys in my own corporate structure and they tell me about some girl that they had at a party, I tell them about the way I used to have three. Huh. He went on acid trips, smoked pot, but when it came down for some trip, I was still black. Oof. <sighs> I hate that people have to live that way. I, I hate it. He continued, it was a period that I had to go through to appreciate what I have now. There's nothing left to do. I've done it all. Even invented a few things. And now I have what every cat really wants. The homely thing of sitting down and having coffee with your old lady. You do that. You have coffee I, with I your sure old do. lady. Yes, I do. Through the 1970s and 80s, the multi-talented Davis continued his prolific output. In 72, he actually toured with the USO in Vietnam. Uh, he maintained his career, releasing an album well into the late 70s and getting his first number one chart hit with 1972's Candyman. So I think you know what I have to play right now. Oh, obviously. Candyman! Sweet chocolate, chocolate malt, candy, gumdrops, anything you want. You've come to the right man because I'm the candy man. Who can take a 
Question. Okay. What do you think of when I would say the Candyman? Uh, the Tony Todd film? <laughs> well, in reference to the song. Of this song in particular? Yes. I don't know. Why? Well, because the year prior to this release, a little film came out called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm. And this song was featured in it. Yes, but the shop owner sings it, correct? Yes. So it, it's kind of a toss up because I grew up with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So that's my word association. I immediately go to the original version of the Candyman because there was a year separation. I still go to the Tony Todd film. I'm going on record with that one. <laughs> it would be a completely different movie yeah, if Tony much. Todd sang that song. I would I would still watch it. I would too. And I feel like Will, I feel like... Um, Tony Todd has such a cool voice. Oh, it'd yeah. probably sound okay. It'd be it'd be cool, yeah. <laughs> so when I was telling you about the episode of All in the Family, this happened in 1972. And he was on the show as himself. And he kisses Archie's cheek at the end. 
And this is apparently one of the most iconic episodes on TV at the time. And that actually went on to be nominated for two Emmys. And if you don't know the scene I'm talking about, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play it for you. Okay. And then I'll kind of do a play-by-play. Because as you guys know, Archie Bunker was one of the most racist, bigoted characters on TV. And I don't think that you could make a show with him as a central character now. Because in that show, he was the protagonist when in literally any other context, he would be the antagonist. He would be the villain in his own story. You see that? You can't lend him nothing. <laughs> There's Munson with the briefcase now there, Sammy. I'll let him right in. Oh, hi, Arch. Munson, we're waiting for you. Where were you? I'm sorry I took so long, Arch, but I bumped into Bonnie Hefner with his camera, so naturally I had to go back oh. and get mine. Mr. Davis, this is an unexpected pleasure. All right, pleasure. Thank you very much. Can I get a picture, oh, Mr. No, no, Davis? Come on, Munson, no pictures. Oh, no, this one is for me. Mr. Munson, would you stand over there? I want one picture taken with Archie Bunker, my friend, and me. You want me? Oh, yes. Now, on three, okay? One, two... said it was in his contract. That is such a great I, scene. I love the smile on his face. It's yes. so great. That's actually on my Amazon wish list is to get the entire series of All in the Family mm-hmm. as a gift because it's like $300. Oh my, really? But yeah. and I streaming somewhere? I don't. They should. They might. I don't know. HBO's got a lot of stuff now. HBO Max is a treasure trove of things you forgot existed. We are not sponsored yeah. by HBO Max, but if they but want if to they give want us to, yeah. some of that sweet, sweet HBO Max money, we are fine with that. I, I don't like mind selling out. I like your 80s movies. <laughs> yeah, so we just we went through that, that episode. It's just so funny that you're right. The smile on his face is just so wicked. It's great. Uh, in the summer of 72, he went on to enjoy his greatest commercial success, on vinyl when the Candyman was released that sat at number one on the Billboard charts. And Sammy's first LP for MGM Records now had risen to number 11. So he's kind of playing three different sides because he's got Mm. MGM, he's got DECA, and he's got Reprise. Right, three different labels, yeah. So he's he's kind of bouncing between labels. And so now he's on MGM, and then that rose to number 11. Producer Mike Curb somehow managed to crack the nut of making Sammy's classic repertoire of ballads and show tunes work commercially rather than indulging in Sammy's semi-successful diversion into R&B and soul. MGM and Sammy quickly got to work on the follow-up album, Portrait of Sammy Davis Jr., which would include Sammy's final signature tune, Mr. Bojangles. Oh, wow. And remember I said in the first episode where he actually got to meet the real Mr. Bojangles? It's in the vaudeville circuit, right? Yeah. This is where it comes back into play. To be Sammy's primary collaborator, MGM, Mike Curb had chosen arranger Don Costa. Costa had worked with Frank Sinatra since 61, with the two of them working very closely into the late 1960s until Costa actually suffered a heart attack while conducting for Sinatra in Japan. 
After Costa's recovery began, he began working with Curb at MGM, producing for the Osmonds and Petula Clark. I love Petula Clark. Hmm. Downtown is a great song, among others, and later continued to work on an occasional project with Sinatra at Reprise. Costa would help produce most of Sammy's output at MGM. Costa had already arranged a couple of tunes for Sammy in 71, but on this occasion, he would employ his versatile talents and arrange the entire album across a range of styles. The only exception is the song In My Own Lifetime, a leftover from Sammy's Motown recordings. The classic Sammy Showstopper, say that three times fast, was from the 1970 Broadway musical The Rothschilds, which was produced by uh, Hillard Elkins, who did Golden Boy. He was the producer for Golden Boy. So there is a little bit of, yeah. yeah. It's the only song that isn't composed by Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley on side one of Portrait of Sammy Davis Jr. Continuing Sammy's career-long love affair with all things musical theater, the remaining four songs on side one, The People Tree, Tomorrow, I Do Not Love You, and It's a Musical World, were all taken from an upcoming West End musical, The Bad Old Good Old Days, which opened in London in December of 1972. Leslie once described this production as a, it was a modest little saga about a man, life, death, God, and the devil with the history of the world thrown in. <laughs> that just sounds... Sounds like a big ask, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the history of the world, God, and the devil just, just pitched in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... Well, Twain did it really well. Is that the claymation one? Yeah. Well, oh. I mean, Mark Twain didn't make the claymation. No, but it's based on his stories. Yeah, no, obviously he didn't sit there and mold the clay. And Yes, but that was one of the most disturbing things I have ever seen in my life. There's a claymation, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, there's a claymation a cartoon called Adventures. The Adventures of Mark Twain. And it's all claymation, and it has a ton of his stories including the jumping frog of Calvary County and uh, Calaveras, County. Calaveras County. And this one where you meet the devil. You don't think like and go to hell and it's yeah, yeah. in an elevator. Yeah. It's very weird. And it's very, very disturbing. <laughs> but anyway, we're off track. <laughs> uh, side two of the LP serves to demonstrate Sammy's flexibility as a vocalist, even within the confines of the middle of the road sound of the era. When the Wind Was Green was a classic ballad dating to the 1940s, whereas You Can Have Her was a a popular rhythm and blues number throughout the 1960s. Sweet Gingerbread Man was a piece of bubblegum pop, which the Mike Curb congregation had incongruently debuted in MGM's R-rated sex and drug films, The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart, while Love is All Around was the theme to the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the first of many TV themes that Sammy would record in the 1970s. Wow. There is a lot going on there. Yeah. It sounds like a very complex album. On the Hills of Candyman, no fewer than three tunes were given similarly chipper arrangements by Costa with syrupy background vocal support from the Mike Curb Congregation, the People Tree, Sweet Gingerbread Man, and It's a Musical World, the first of those which was released as a single and was successful enough to climb to number 16 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary Charts. The last becoming the title track for the special MGM compilation, It's a Musical World, which was also released in the UK in 1972. Okay. Ooh, yeah. And on that note, let's take a little break with okay. one of the greatest songs 
ever lay down, <laughs> Mr. Bojangles. A newer man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. shoes with silver hair a ragged shirt and baggy pants he would do the old soft shoe he could jump so high jump so high and then he'd lightly touch down Met him in a cell In New Orleans I was Well I was down and out He looked to me to be the very eyes of age As he spoke right out Talked of life Lord, he talked of life <laughs> Laughed, slapped his leg a step He said his name was Bojangles Then he danced a lick Right across the cell He grabbed his pants Took a better stance Jumped up high that's when he clicked his heels. Then he let go a laugh. Lord, he let go a laugh. <laughs> Shook back his clothes all around. That was Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Lord, he could dance He told me other times he worked for minstrel shows Traveling throughout the South he spoke with tears of 15 years How his dog and he They just traveled about But his dog up and died Dog up and died And after 20 years he still grieved He said I danced now at every chance in honky tonks for my drinks and tips, but most of the time I spend behind these county bars. You see, son, I, I drinks a bit, 
Then he shook his head Lord, when he shook his head I could swear I heard someone Say please Mr. Bojangles I'm Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Come back and dance Dance, dance, please dance I'm Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Dance Why can't you come back and dance? Please, Bojangles. Mmm, dance. Again, Bojangles. You're right. It's a very sad song. It's depressing. It is. Also, I feel like anybody who can whistle is just showing off. Especially whistling that well. I mean, yeah. <laughs> reel it in, Sammy. Leave some for the rest of us. God, come on, man. This is why I have no talent. It's because Sammy Davis took it all. Way before I even had... Like, he's doing this before I was born. You, you didn't even get to go to the buffet yet. <laughs> no. In 1973, he actually got to kind of live out one of my dreams. And that is? To stay in the White House in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> now, why is it, LD, that you want to stay in the Lincoln bedroom? Well, person who I don't know who asked that question internally, because this is a podcast and I can't hear you, apparently it's haunted. And for those who know me, I love haunted stories. And uh, I would love to do a paranormal investigation in that room. In so, the Lincoln bedroom? Yes. Has someone done it? Like one of the ghost adventures? Or? I don't I don't think so. But I would like to be the first. I mean, not right now, of course, but like one day. Yes, one day. Uh, he had a, a smash hit in Sammy, which was a television retrospective of the first half century in show business. But his second try at a network show, which was the NBC Follies, was canceled midway through the 1973-74 season. So... His show in 66, I'm not sure how long that lasted, but this one was canceled pretty early on. Hmm. So in the second biography published about him called Why Me, there was a story of a man coming to his uh, to Sammy's table in a nightclub to greet him after he had become an international celebrity. That man was the very person who had refused him admission to the same club the year before. Oh, wow. He felt like he should have said something to the man to get away from me with his hypocrisy. That's in quotes. But he was silent. So I went home and I threw up, he said. I had to stifle my own feelings and it made me sick. And that night I vowed I would never let that happen again. 
okay, if you guys haven't seen it, there is a movie by Edgar Wright called World's End. <laughs> and in that, there is a character named Peter. And Peter was brutally beaten by a bully several times while growing up. And so when they go back to the town, that same bully comes over and asks if they're using a chair. And he looks at Peter and he asks him for the chair. And he's like, go ahead and take it. And he takes it. And the thing that makes him the most angry was that he didn't acknowledge Peter's pain. He looked right through him. And I think that that's the same thing that Sammy feels. It's like that he didn't get a chance to acknowledge his pain and his anger to this person who saw him as nothing. Yeah, and who was basically coming as a Fairweather fan of, oh, now you're famous, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In 1978, Sammy's life began to turn around significantly. And this is due in part from an intervention from Frank, who was concerned about his substance abuse. And we haven't really talked about that because no matter how much I dug and dug, it really doesn't say anything except for a passing mention of it. Yeah, I think all we know is he he did go in and out of sort of lapses, if you will, with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I also feel like that's the 60s and 70s. Uh, Right, everybody did that. If if you reach a, a certain level of fame, it was kind of almost expected of you at that point yeah absolutely and it's weird that we live in a society where we were like oh so d snyder has never smoked and never drank and we're surprised by this. and we're surprised yeah. by that we ex- it's it's the thing where we expect bad behavior yeah from celebrities yeah, we, we have an image in our heads and when they don't meet that it's either complete surprise or disgust. But, but see, again, that's where the stigma comes in. You see a picture of D. Snyder, the first thing you imagine is he drinks, he smokes, he does all these things. And then when he came out in that, what, court case? Oh, yeah, against Tipper Gore. Against Tipper Gore. And the man spoke intelligently. We were all surprised. It's like, why? Why? Why can't we be? Yeah. Yeah. Why can't artists like that be as intelligent as D. Snyder is? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we get really excited when we find out that Dolph Lundgren speaks four languages, but like... Well, he was He-Man and Ivan Drago. <laughs> so he actually became involved in a new project, which sobriety was required. The music stopped the world. I want to get off. The production began rehearsals in April, toured for May and July, and opened on Broadway in August 1976. And the cast album will become Davis's second to last LP release. This one's for my brother. Okay. In June 19th, 1981, Cannonball Run was released. (laughs) Nice. Starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Burt Reynolds. I feel like Burt Reynolds deserves his own episode. Oh, he's got ties to the Rat Pack. Well, not only that, but he also did Best Little Whorehouse in Texas Mm -hmm. with Dolly. And he did pass, so I feel like we could do an episode on him. I am going to mention him in my Frank episode, so there's something coming with him. Okay. Excellent. Uh, By 1982, Davis was back on top of his game and had become a respected headliner again, turning the world to his former acclaim. But this time was regarded as an artist who had long since come and gone. His final full-length LP, Closest of Friends, a country and western album, which was recorded in Nashville, was probably a a labor of love for someone with a great affinity for all things western. He had acted in several western films and on TV. Hmm. In, in his heyday, he was said to be one of the two fastest draws in Hollywood. I think James Garner was the first. Or Wayne, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I know James Garner was mentioned in my research. Probably. That would make so, sense. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. 
The final album did, however, provide an easy, licensable material for a million cut price CD producers to use in their phony Davis greatest hits or Rat Pack collections. And those are in bunny ears, which means basically they would just pull a song or two off to do like their like slap a greatest hits label on an album to make a an, an easy buck. Yeah, it was from him. Low hanging fruit. Yes. This was a final indignity to a recording career that until recently had almost been criminally under reissued. By the late 1980s, manager Sid Marsh took Sammy to a specialist who discovered that his singing and smoking had caused nodes on his vocal cords. And for those who don't know, actually, Julie Andrews had nodes on her vocal cords and she went through the surgery. And they were afraid that her voice was going to be lost forever. So when we were watching Princess Diaries 2 the other day, uh, thank you for sitting through that because I needed that in my life. Uh, Julie Andrews, it was a huge deal when Julie sang again. And so you can imagine the fear of finding those vocal notes. I think sadly she will never sing the way she did ever again. I I don't think she will either, but she's still like it was still beautiful. In late 1987, Sammy was chosen for a Kennedy Center Honors, annual awards given since 1978 to those with the performing arts for their lifelong contributions to American culture. The weekend-long ceremony culminates in the early evening at the White House reception hosted by the President of the United States and the First Lady, followed by a star-studded gala celebrating the honorees in the Kennedy Center Opera House. In 1987, Sammy joined singer Perry Como. <laughs> Como. Actress Betty Davis, violinist Nathan Milstein, and choreographer Owen Nicholas as honorees. Lucille Ball presented a tribute to Sammy, followed by a performance by tap dancers the Nicholas Brothers, Chuck Green, Jimmy Slide, and Sandman Sims. Ray Charles sang The Birth of the Blues. Sammy considered it the greatest honor of his career. I can imagine. We were talking about uh, Che Rivera performing at the Kennedy Center Honors last time. And by the way, yeah, Cheetah still alive, still literally kicking. That's amazing. And I think she was born in 1933. She's pushing 100? Yeah, she's she's getting there. But I, I was looking at pictures of her and dang, she still looks incredible. I hope against all hopes that I still look like her when I'm her age. Throughout this period, as well as performing individual engagements, Sammy enjoyed still performing with his friends, and he regularly teamed up with Sinatra, Dean, Count Basie, Sarah Vaughn, and Buddy Rich. That's a lineup right there. Yeah, it is. His more frequent collaborators were Bill Cosby, with whom he partnered with in 1983, 85, and 88 for performances billed as Sammy and Cos, Two Friends. Now, for those of you tuning into this, uh, there was a time when Bill Cosby was a family man and a respected comedian, and it was in the last few years that the allegations that you now know about came out. So this is a time when I think Bill Cosby was... He was still loved. He He was was beloved, yeah. He was was America's father. He was America's TV dad, yep. Yeah. I mean, and the Cosby show was a juggernaut. Oh, yeah. And his stand-up comedy was... Amazing. He was pitching things like Jello, Jello pudding, the pudding pops. Yeah, but was it picture pages? Picture. Yeah. Oh my God. Picture was that Bill pages. Cosby? Yes, yeah. it was. I wanted that pen so bad. But suffice to say, it was nearly not the the scandalous individual you know today. Yes. And I mean, 
we, we felt it again, not on such a global scale, but with Jerry Harris from Cheer being plugged for, you know, having children on his computer. I'm just going to say it the nicest way I can. I still don't think that stabs it America in the heart. Like it the, doesn't hit like Bill Cosby does, yeah. but it's kind of the same in the same vein. It was somebody that you enjoyed watching. You trusted them. You thought, oh my gosh, they're charming. They're amazing. They're talented. They're funny. And not only that, but they're backing people that they could literally throw under a bus to get farther ahead when yeah. it comes to cheer. And he just seemed like such a great person, and now he's going to prison. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was a disappointment and a huge one. I think Bill Cosby felt like a betrayal. Uh, you know? When when I found out about yeah. Bill Cosby, I'm like, my mouth hit the ground. Because we grew up with, oh, sure. with him. Yeah. Like, we grew up with those sweaters. We grew up <laughs> with that jello. We grew up with those shows. Like, I loved the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. I loved A Different World. His stand-up was hysterical. His stand-up was amazing. and And now you feel betrayed. Because you feel like that was a complete lie. But sorry, we went on a Bill Cosby tangent. I did think that was relevant, though. But it was very relevant. Uh, He also teamed up for an HBO special in 1988 with Jerry Lewis. Oh, wow. Which he has done the telephones for Jerry Lewis before. And uh, they were friends. And and, and Sammy would do the, the, the famous Jerry Lewis telethon. Right, yeah. In 89, Sammy and Altavice adopted a son, Manny, who was 11 years old at the time. Dude, bravo. But while his career continued, the performer embarked on a lauded tour with Sinatra and Liza Minnelli during the late 80s. Davis's health actually began to fade. He was a heavy smoker, and he smoked, can you guess how many packs of cigarettes he would smoke a day? I remember you asked me this while you were writing the script, and whatever guess I gave was low. Yes. I don't think it's as many as Yul Brenner. <laughs> no, Yul smacked, smacked, Yul smoked five a day. Yeah, I think Yul wins. Maybe Rod Serling is a close second? I don't know. But, I don't know how you get yeah. up to five packs a day, but, but Sammy got to four packs a day Jeez. during his lifetime. Now, when I was a smoker, I would balk if I finished a pack in a day. So that's 20 cigarettes in a pack times four. So he'd smoke how much? Times how many you say it was? It's 20 times four. 80. So he would smoke 80 cigarettes a day. Yeah, he'd smoke 80 cigarettes a day. That's insane. That's so much. Yule was coming in at a cool 100. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I mean, when do you even have the time to smoke that much? I don't know. I, I, I do know that on the set of 24 that they were debating making Jack Bauer a smoker because of Kiefer's frequent habit at the time. Oh, cheese and crackers. And and then uh, you had yeah. Dennis Leary was a major smoker. And he quit. And yeah. he actually quit. I quit. I quit smoking. I think Kiefer quit, too. And I, do, I think Kiefer did quit. Yeah, I think he did. I think he just hit an age where he was just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't. Like, you make a choice of either I'm just going, this is the hill I die on, probably literally, or you quit. And those guys quit, and I quit. And But Sammy did not, right? I don't think, yeah, no, Sammy did not. He was a heavy smoker, and he smoked four packs a day. And in 1989, the doctors discovered a tumor in his throat. The fall of that year, he gave what would be his final performance at the Harris Casino in Lake Tahoe. His best chance of survival, they said, was a larynectomy. But he said that he would rather keep his voice over having his throat removed. Oof. So instead, he underwent chemotherapy and radiation. And many people said that despite his ailment... 
His singing voice was still beautiful. Reporter Bill Boyer recalled to Vanity Fair, It was stunning. Here's a man dying of throat cancer, and his voice was glorious, like mm. a nightingale. It was almost unreal. So Sammy lay near death from the ravages of throat cancer in his Hollywood Hills home, according to his personal friends. We're going to lose him, said entertainer Jerry Lewis, who visited the 64-year-old Davis three weeks ago and has been in daily contact with Davis's family. So at this point, he still has his kids and he has his wife. And they're kind of bouncing information to everybody. It's a matter of days or perhaps hours, Lewis said. Since his release from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles six weeks ago, Davis's condition has worsened steadily, confining him to his bed, said another friend who asked not to be identified. The pencil-thin song and dance man whose career has spanned vaudeville, Broadway, movies, TV, has now wasted away to 60 or 70 pounds and sleeps most of the time. His wife, Alto Weiss, remains close to his bedside. It's very, very sad, said Susan Reynolds, the entertainment publisher. Sammy is a terribly sick man. We don't know what more can be done. Earlier this week, Davis's daughter Tracy brought her three-year-old daughter to see her terminally ill grandfather, which brought a smile to his face. Such other friends as Sinatra and actor Roger Moore have also visited their stricken friend. Actress Shirley MacLaine, who is also a member of the Rat Pack, and a longtime friend, was the only female member of that Rat Pack. Isn't that awesome? Shirley MacLaine? Yeah, she was oh, the only man. female member. The visit by Jerry Lewis came three weeks ago after he completed a concert tour. For the last seven months, I've telephoned and talked to all the people around Sammy getting reports, Lewis said, but he delayed my visit. He didn't want me to see him in this condition. And I think there comes a point when someone's so sick that basically, I mean, my mom wouldn't let me see my grandmother toward the end of her life because she said, don't you want to remember her for how she was? And I think that's true. Like, there comes a point where, when you're younger, I believe, that you should keep the the memory of how they were. But once you get older, I feel like you have the capacity to be able to accept what's happened to them and enjoy those last few moments. Yeah, it's a different perspective, I think. Yeah. As I get older and wiser, on the verge of my birthday. <laughs> Altovice said, Sammy told her, when I think I'm going, I'll call Jerry and Frank and tell them to come. So when I got the call from Altovice three weeks ago... I felt like the roof had fallen in. Lewis said that he wept after seeing Davis, who worked on the Comedian's National Multiple Sclerosis Telethon last year. So yeah, he did He did the, the telethon. Mm -hmm. You see, Sammy did the telethon last September knowing what his prognosis was. He knew that he had cancer, but he was on the air for 24 hours with the New York section of the show. But he didn't tell me about his condition because he didn't want to upset me. I'm afraid we're about to lose a wonderful man and a great entertainer. Sammy is a treasure, Lewis said. Another entertainment source said that Davis was being fed intravenously and has been able to recognize visitors. He recently received a white robe by California designer Bill Whitten with the embroidered signature of over more than a hundred entertainers, and that gift brought him a smile, the source said. Davis, an actor, singer, dancer, musician, mimic, comedian, star of Broadway, Hollywood, TV, and Las Vegas would pass away. A pencil-thin powerhouse of a talent who had overcome racial discrimination and a physical disability to become an entertainment legend died Wednesday after an eight-month battle with throat cancer. He was 64. Davis died in his sleep at 5.59 a.m. on May 16, 1990 at his Hollywood home, where he'd been confined to the bed as his condition worsened after his release from Cedar sinai 
Death came just five days after his 20th anniversary to his third wife. They were wed May 11, 1970. Prince Davis, always a wiry waif of a man, had spent most of his time sleeping during his final days. Despite being 64 at the time of his death, he was survived by his mother, Elvira Sanchez, and his grandmother, Elvira's mother, Luisa, died in 1995 at 112. That's amazing. 112. She was 112. Sammy Davis Jr. was often billed as the greatest living entertainer in the world. Shortly after his death, the hotels on the Las Vegas Strip turned off their exterior lights for 10 minutes in tribute. There's currently an outdoor theater in Las Vegas named in his honor, the Sammy Davis Jr. Festival Plaza. And he actually died the same day that Jim Henson died. See, I didn't know that. I think that would kind of be... Our contemporary equivalent would be the day that Farrah Fawcett and Michael Jackson died. Yeah, like two people of that level. Wow. Yeah. And the day that Tolkien died, Kennedy died? That was Lewis, actually. Lewis. C.S. Lewis died the same day as Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. Crazy. So here's uh, just a couple of notes. But when he died, he was in debt. To pay for his funeral, most of his memorabilia was sold off. That's sad. Yeah. Following his death, he was interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California, in the Garden of Honor next to his father. And for those who don't know, there's actually two forest lawns. And there's a forest lawn in Glendale and then a forest lawn in Burbank. Yes. And I think they're both accessible by the same road, though, right? Yeah, I think one goes through because there's the freeway right there. Yeah. So I believe you can get there from yeah from that road. There's one, one road. Like, one's on the left, one's on the right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I usually go to the one in Burbank because, being the weirdo I am... Um, I love cemeteries because they're quiet and people have respect in there. So if I ever need to think, I just wander around. But uh, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds are actually buried in the one in Burbank, where Michael Jackson's actually buried in the one in Glendale. The I think the more celebrities are actually buried in the Glendale one. And then there's the Hollywood Forever. That's a different one, right? The yeah. One Hollywood Forever is... Uh, By Paramount Studios, I believe? Yeah. And I think that's where Marilyn Monroe was originally buried, but then they they reinterred her somewhere else. We'll get to that one day. Fun fact, he was given a gift, a black sapphire ring by Elvis Presley, who told him, this is the biggest, blackest star I've seen, so I'm giving it to the biggest, blackest star I know. From Elvis? From huh. Elvis. Uh, he was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for recording. And you can find that star at 6254 Hollywood Boulevard. And that was given to him in honor on February 8th, 1960. If you look at his IMDb, he's got 108 credits for soundtracks, 74 for acting. That's amazing. He was inducted into the National Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the International Civil Rights Walk of Fame. He is a NAACP Image Award winner. And he was actually uh, awarded a nominee for Worst Supporting Actor at the Razzies for Cannonball 2. But <laughs> that, he, that happened. But he didn't win. <laughs> On the opposite side, he actually won an Emmy for an outstanding variety music or comedy show for Sammy Davis Jr.'s 60th anniversary celebration. He was nominated for a Tony in 1965. And I wanted to end the episode on a quote by him. Alcohol 
gives you infinite patience for stupidity. <laughs> I'm kidding. That is not what I wanted to end on, even though he did say that. That is a quote from Sammy? That is a quote That's from beautiful. Sammy. My talent was the weapon, the power, the way for me to fight. It was the only way I might hope to affect man's thinking. And it might be true. That was the only weapon that he had to fight racism, to be accepted. Yeah. And I think that it sucks that he had to spend most of his life fighting for that. I just go back to the one thing he said when he, the whole, when he had to get married and was it 48 hours? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember his quote where he just turns to his friend and says, why can't they let me just live my life? I mean, I, I feel like that was the theme for his entire existence. Yeah. And he put, he had a gun to his head at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so for, for even all the success that he experienced in his life, he was still fighting for equality. And I'm glad that it's gotten better over the years, but we still have so far to go when it comes to this. So please keep fighting. That's all I have to say. And that's pretty much where we're going to end this episode. So if you like us, you think we're doing a good job, and you'd like to give us money, we would like that a lot. And you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter if you want to shoot a tweet to us. We are at rock and roll LT. Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod. Come by and say hi to us over there. It's a lot of fun. Still not saying our website. And you mm -hmm. can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Actually, you know, email me uh, a letter and ask me questions or tell me things. I like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, to end this episode, I'm going to finish on a song that we didn't even really mention throughout the entire episode. But this is what I was given as an introduction to Sammy Davis Jr., so it's more of a personal choice to end on this rather than a thematic choice. Okay. Because my brother-in-law, Bob, would play the Rat Pack albums if they had to babysit me. <laughs> and that's how I got my musical intro to the Rat Pack. So in honor of uh, my brother-in-law, Bob, I'm going to finish with Lady is a Tramp. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. We will see you next week. Keep on rocking in the free world. Goodbye, Will. Goodbye. I wind and on Mulligan stew. Never wish for turkey. I've hitched and hiked and drifted too. From Maine to Albuquerque. When I go home to Harlem, I try to act real cool. But when I go uptown, I make damn sure that I never take Peter O'Toole. Social circles spin too fast for me. Duncan Shane. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. My. <laughs> That's it. I know one other German word beside Duncan Shane. Thank you. I know a house mit him. <laughs> My <laughs> hope, Bohemia, that's the place I want to be. Ha, ha, ha.
she gets too hungry for dinner at eight. She adores the theater, but won't arrive late. She'll never argue with a cat she'd hate. And that's why the lady is a tramp. Won't go to Coney, Malibu is fine. Loves the French Riviera, it's seasoned divine. Refuses to believe Frank Sinatra is a friend of mine. That's why the lady is a tramp. Likes that green grass growing under her shoes. Great Charles singing the blues. She's flat, that is that. that free, fresh wind in her hair, her life's without care, she is from but in some hates California, it's smoggy and damp, that's why the lady is a tramp, why the lady, yeah, why the lady, yeah, why the lady, That free, fresh wind in her wing. There ain't nothing she don't dig. She's a swinger, a humdinger. Hates San Francisco. It's cold and it's damp. That's why my lady is a tramp. Why the lady, 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 why the lady? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 